We're going to be in Matthew 5 today, and it's really awesome to be able to be back here in the pulpit after being sick and then having a guest speaker last week. Matthew 5. Those of you who are just joining us today, man, thank you for, for, for being here at Cloverleaf Baptist Church. Uh, we try to be a church that is simply tr- making much of Jesus. We're, we're not trying to draw attention to ourselves, but to point others to him. And one of the things we try to value here is just the teaching of God's word, just taking the word, explaining it, not trying to make it say what we want it to say, but doing our best to make it say what God intended for it to say. And right now we're just a couple of weeks into a study of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' great sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a sermon that shows us what real Christianity looks like. So I want you just to follow along as we read the first 12 verses. Do you have, your, have a copy of the scripture? And by the way, I really encourage you, have the Bible open. Because this is the authority, not me, the, the, the Bible, God's word, God's truth. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the few Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, take it home with you. We'd, we'd love for you to have a copy of God's word of your very own. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, when he was seated, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed, we talked a couple weeks ago, Blessed, happy, flourishing. This is the good life. These are the people who are envied. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs, for theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst. After righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted. That's odd. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they, the prophets, which were before you. There are some things in life that are just not what they would seem at first glance. You'd think, for example, that if you took salt and put it on your watermelon or on your pineapple, that it would make it taste salty. Uh, Now, those of you who like watermelon... Uh, you know that's not the case. It makes it actually more flavorful. It's just kind of counterintuitive, right? Like, and by the way, it doesn't work the other way. You can't put like sugar on steak and be like, mmm, that's more flavor. It doesn't work that way. Uh, or those, those light, fluffy cumulus clouds you see in the sky, you're like, oh, those are so, so nice and, and airy and puffy. You know, one of those clouds weighs over a million pounds of water vapor, like a nice, fluffy little cloud that you fly the plane through. A million pounds, like that's unbelievable. Or you just kind of move this to sort of the way we think about daily life. You, you would think about naturally, and all of us do this at times, right? You're like, man, I really want someone to like me. But isn't it true the harder you try to make people like you, the less likely they are to like you? You pick up on someone and be like, man, they're performing. They're putting this thing on. Like, we're, we're not attracted to people who are trying to put on a show. Yet you think, if I want them to like me, I'll try to do the things that will make them like me, and it just doesn't, doesn't work. You go to school, and you think, man, I want to go to school so I can know things. You know what happens? The further you go along in your education, the more you learn, the more you realize, I don't know a stinking thing, right? Like the more you learn, the more uncertain you are about the things you're like, I used to think this, but now I've earned a PhD in this thing, and it's like, it's actually really complicated. 
or this is one, you've probably experienced this before, your, 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 your wife's like, hey, can you go to, go to Walmart and pick up some cereal? You're like, great. You get down the cereal aisle, and there's like 800 different boxes of cereal, and you're like, now what? Having more choices does not actually make us happier. Having, making more choices, having more choices often makes us discontent, because you buy the Cheerios off the shelf, you go home and eat them, you'll be like, man, would I have been happier if I had gotten Raisin Bran? Right? Like you second guess all of your choices, just counterintuitive, doesn't quite line up with sort of conventional thinking. We call these things paradoxes. You would say, you know, the, 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 sometimes the way to be happier is to have fewer choices. The way to have people like you is not trying to make them like you. These beatitudes we just read, that's just the, the Latin word that translates the word, the Greek word makarios, which we, we noted. It's not so much the idea of God giving you blessing or favor, but more the, hey, look at this guy over here. This guy over here is the one that you want to be. You want the good life. You want to be truly flourishing. You, you want to have the, the, the life that everyone else will one day wish they had. These are the attributes. Jesus is saying, here's the way to truly live, to truly flourish in this world. And it's not the way that the world thinks that you should go. Jesus is giving us this counterintuitive, paradoxical, the, the way up is down kind of path to true happiness. We would think, you know, the way to truly be happy is to have lots of stuff. And Jesus is like, actually, the way to be truly happy is to be poor in spirit, to see yourself as a, as a beggar before God. You say, man, the way to be happy is to never be sorrowful or mourn. He says, hey, the way to be truly blessed is to mourn over your sin. Some people say, man, the way to truly flourish is to have it all and to sort of rule the world and be promoted at work and be recognized as the best in my business and to have everyone sort of do what I want them to do. He says, no, 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 blessed are the meek, those who have surrendered themselves to God, those who recognize that I'm just humble, trust myself to God. I don't have to throw my weight around. Just totally the backward, opposite way of the world. Now, you could go to Books A Million today. I think it's still open. I go across the bay to, to Barnes & Noble, go to the self-help section. And you'll find a bunch of books telling you the way to really live the good life is, is kind of the opposite of this. Um, there's been this weird trend in the last 10 years of people writing self-help books with profanity in the titles. You notice that, and there's like little asterisks and just like don't care what people think. Uh, no, 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 no. The way to true happiness is not to read the latest profanity lay self-help book by Mark Manson or follow the philosophy that says, follow your dreams and don't care what anyone else thinks. No, Jesus is the meek are those who inherit the earth. So do you want to live the good life? Like, really, seriously, like, yeah, do you want to live the truly good life? Do you really want to flourish and have true, lasting, eternal happiness? Listen, the reality is all of us do. Every decision we make is driven by that goal. Like, nobody makes a decision to be like, I want to be miserable. Uh, even decisions are like, that seems to make you miserable. People are still looking for something. Well, Jesus is laying out the blueprint, and he's saying, here it is. He's not just saying... You ought to live this way. You're like, hey, yes, sir, I'll do it. And I, and I just grit my teeth and saying, not only should you live this way, but this is the best way to live. Not only ought you to live this way, but this is good. It's not only right, but it's beneficial and it's beautiful and it is attractive. He is commending this to us to say, here is the truly good life and it's not what you think it is. So what's going on in the Beatitudes? Jesus is laying out eight characteristics. Notice these are not eight actions. He's not saying, hey, here's eight steps. There's eight things to sort of do one time in your life, and that'll be the good life. He's saying, here are eight things that ought to define you, your character, who you really are. Remember who Jesus is speaking. There's the Pharisees, the hypocrites, who had sort of reduced piety to a list of rules, of boxes that you check. Jesus is like, this is not a check the box. This is about character, about 
seeing yourself as poor in spirit, about being one who is a mourner, seeing one who responds to sin in a certain way. Eight characteristics. So we, we looked a couple weeks ago at the first four and noted they, they, they primarily deal with our relationship with God. Remember how the Ten Commandments, the first set, deal with the vertical relationship and the second set deal with the, with the horizontal? Jesus is doing something similar here with the Beatitudes. It's like my relationship with God, I need to see myself as, as a spiritual beggar. By the way, that means the rest of the Sermon on the Mount cannot be a path to work salvation. The very first statement out of Jesus' mouth is you can't do this yourself. You're not bringing anything to the table. You've got to come humbly and need a grace. Mourning over sin, being humble, treasuring righteousness. And then we get the second set of four, which primarily are displayed in our relationships with other people. Um, now, I'll just note a couple things about the structure. Notice the first one in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Now look at the eighth one in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is sort of the bookends beginning and ending the same way to say, these are the values that define those who possess the kingdom. In other words, this is what a genuine Christian looks like. Now notice this as well. The fourth one, verse 6, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness, circle that word if you like to circle words, for they shall be filled. Look at the last one in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. So here's what we got. We got two sets of four. Okay, the fourth one of set number one ends with mentioning righteousness. And the fourth set of the second group ends with talking about righteousness. The first one talks about having the kingdom and the last one talks about having the kingdom. So we're getting two panels. This is very structured. Jesus is not just coming up being like, let's see, blessed are the oh, yeah, poor in spirit. And uh, let's see, the no, this is very structured, very deliberate. There is a flow to this. There's a reason why we're splitting this into two messages. And it's not just because I like didn't finish last time. Um, so let's dive in here with the second set of values. We looked at the ones about the vertical relationship with God. Now here's what they're going to look like in the horizontal relationships with others. God cares about what we do and what we are. He cares about the vertical relationship and the horizontal. Both need to be there. So what does the truly blessed, truly flourishing, the person whose life is envied, the good life? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, the person who is compassionate. Okay, we're looking at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What is mercy? It's being concerned about people in their need. Okay, so the need might be physical, the need might be spiritual, but I'm, your heart going out to them, it's related to the idea of compassion. So compassion is sort of the, you, you, you see someone who is hurting on the side of the road, compassion is like, oh, man, I hurt for them. Mercy is going the next step to say, I'm going to do something about it. It's related to the idea of grace. These are really complementary terms. Some people want to split them apart too much. I think they, they really overlap. Grace is sort of the idea of favor, addressing people in their guilt, is this, this kindness that moves towards people in their suffering and in their sin. And you want to see what mercy looks like. It's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. His entire life and ministry was marked by mercy. We see Jesus, he heals the sick. He doesn't run away from the being, oh, they're under God's judgment. No, he moves towards the sick. He goes and he lays his hands on lepers that everyone else would have been like, oh, they're lepers, stay away from them. He eats with sinners, with publicans. He's willing to put his own reputation out there where people are like, oh, Jesus, you're hanging out with publicans and sinners. Aren't you, you know, like condoning what they're doing? And he's like, I'm here as a physician to heal the sick, to, to, to help those. He welcomes the outcasts, the, the, the prostitutes, the vile tax collectors, the gangsters of the day, the people who we would look at today. They, like, there's the, the, the drug addict on the side of the road. They flock to Jesus and he welcomed them with open arms. 
marked by mercy. And, and by the way, the Pharisees were not marked by mercy. Jesus says, God would rather have mercy than sacrifice, quoting from, from, uh, from Hosea 6, verse 6. All the way back in Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. Jesus is not saying anything new here. He's saying God, you know, the law of God, the point of the law of God was to show you what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, to show mercy. So mercy, it's more than feeling pity. We see Jesus being moved with compassion. He sees the multitudes, and then he does something about it. He gets up on a mountain, and he preaches. He's meeting their real need. Later on, we see similar language. He sees the multitudes, and they're hungry, and he provides a meal, both the spiritual needs and the physical needs being met. It's more than pity. It is pity that acts. It is a readiness to extend grace. It is a readiness to forgive those who wrong you. It's a readiness to move towards sin and suffering, not to run away from it. Mercy is sitting with Job in the ash heap and keeping your mouth shut. It's spending time in hospital rooms. It's holding someone while they weep. It's being there. Mercy is absorbing those harsh words that are said, at you, said to you in anger and not retaliating. It's being sinned against repeatedly and yet forgiving. Now, I think it's worth noting that notice what's right before and after this, because if this is all we had, just be merciful, just be merciful. Verse 6 says, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Verse 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is not saying, just be merciful and don't care about sin. Right? He's putting mercy right next to righteousness, right next to purity. This is a reminder that when we show mercy to someone, mercy never means downplaying someone's sin. Mercy is never saying, oh, it doesn't matter, that's fine. There's a difference, by the way, when somebody has wronged you and then they come and repent. Someone comes to you like, man, I, I said something harsh to you. It was, it hurt. You know, you, you, you were sinned against. You know you were sinned against. They come and say, I have sinned. Will you forgive me? You say, oh, that's fine. You're saying the sin didn't really matter. But when you say, I forgive you, you're saying, yes, you did sin against me. I'm acknowledging that and I'm choosing to let the debt go. Mercy is not a, oh, it's fine. I don't care about sin. No, a mercy is a, I forgive you, recognizing that what you did really was wrong and it really did hurt, and I'm letting go of it anyway. So being merciful never means downplaying sin. Being merciful sometimes means meeting people in the middle of their sin. Sort of showing up, if you will, at the accident scene that sin has brought about. Not as the, uh, the rubbernecker to be like, oh, let's see what happened over there, but as the paramedic to come and offer help. That's what mercy is. It's looking like Jesus you, you might ask yourself, well, why should I do this? Why should I show mercy? You know, it kind of goes against all of our natural inclinations. Uh, being merciful goes against our natural inclination to be vengeful, to be bitter, to be unforgiving, to be judgmental. Uh, so a little later on in the sermon, Jesus will say, judge not, you be not judged, one of his most famous utterances. The Pharisees were like that. They were really good at pointing out everyone's sin and really horrible about being forgiving and, and showing kindness, showing mercy. Let's be honest, it feels good sometimes to be wronged. Here's why. Somebody wronged me and I can claim the moral high ground and be like, oh, I've been wronged. I have the moral high ground. I'm a victim. It feels good to have that victim status. It feels good to withhold the forgiveness. So you're sort of like, uh, that person's wronged me and I'm going to hold on to what they've done like a loaded gun that I can use whenever I need it. It feels good, right? It, makes me, it gives me a sense of being like, I'm better than that person who did that thing to me. It, it, Self-righteousness and a lack of mercy go hand in hand. When I want to be like, man, I want to puff up my own self-righteousness, 
Choosing to not forgive someone can make me feel really good because it puts me here and it leaves them there. It feels good to hold that grudge. It feels good to withhold forgiveness. It can feel good in our fallen nature to heap scorn and condemnation on sinners. And even on sufferers. It gives us that, that sneaking suspicion that I'm better off than other people and maybe a little bit more worthy than that person who sinned against me. So there's a good litmus test. Your, your spouse sins against you. I know maybe you've got a perfect marriage. This never happens. But you sin against your spouse. Your spouse sins against you. I think it happens to, to all of us. If you find yourself unforgiving towards me, like, well, I'm going to not let them forget. I'll bring that back up in the next argument. If you find yourself constantly irritated at your children, at their sin and at their failure, at their weakness, at their childishness, if you find yourself callous toward the suffering of the person struggling with an addiction, if you find yourself intolerant of the failings of your coworkers, it is more than likely that self-righteousness is lurking not too far below the surface of your heart. You see, unforgiveness, a lack of mercy, the critical spirit, it grows in that soil of self-righteousness. It flourishes in the atmosphere of pride. You see, it is self-righteousness that is critical. It is self-righteousness that is unforgiving. It is self-righteousness that is unmerciful. In fact, self-righteousness is often harshest to sinners who sin in the way that I myself sin. Uh, the, the alcoholic will be most loudly condemning other alcoholics. The, the person with an impure heart will, will most loudly denounce those who struggle with sexual sin. D.A. Carson wrote this. He says, it's generally true that the sinner who won't face up to his sin hates all other sinners. Ouch, right? Like, what are the sins I find myself most angrily reacting to in others? Step back and hold a mirror up and say, where is that sin manifesting itself in, in my life? Challenging question to ask. So what is the motivation? The motivation is not going to be my own righteousness. Remember I said a minute ago, these are laid out into four panels. Okay, this is the first of number, blessed are the merciful. What's the first one of the first panel? Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. There, there's, a, there's a clue here. The way that I'm going to show mercy, the motivation to showing mercy is realizing that I am what? Poor in spirit. When I see myself as a beggar who does not deserve anything from God, and yet he showered his mercy upon me, the more I see myself as a sinner who has obtained and received mercy that I did not deserve, the more readily I will show mercy to other people. I will best show grace to other people when I know that I myself am in need of God's grace. What happens to us as we forget that? We forget that I am nothing more than a beggar who came to this with empty pockets and empty hands. And we begin to think, man, I'm starting to grow in holiness and righteousness. I, I must be something. And then we begin to be harsh towards other people. We're like the guy in the parable in Matthew 18 who owed his master $10 million. Master's going to throw him away in the prison. Be like, you're done. You're going to be sold into slavery. And he goes and begs on his knees, would you have mercy with me? And the master, the king, is like, I forgive you everything. And then that same guy goes and turns around and finds a guy who owns, owes him $10,000. And he grabs him by the neck and says, pay what you owe me. He forgot that he had been, just been forgiven $10 million. Jesus finishes out that parable with the guy, the king coming back to the guy being like, I forgave you everything. You wouldn't forgive your servant. I am going to exact what is owed you. You're going to be thrown to the tormentors into prison. You go. The surest sign that I have been forgiven by God is that I am ready to forgive other people. So much so, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they and they only shall obtain mercy. Notice that's future tense. One day we're going to stand before God on judgment day. 
All of us desperately need will need mercy on that day. If God gives us justice on the day of judgment day, we are all condemned, all doomed, because we've all sinned against God. Who's going to receive mercy and an acquittal and a enter into the presence of my Lord on the judgment day? Those who have shown mercy. Now, let me be very careful. Jesus is not saying, show mercy, show mercy, show mercy, and you will now earn God's mercy and favor. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is those who are citizens of his kingdom, those who have received mercy at conversion, will demonstrate that that is true by showing mercy to other people. So you can go, you can go to Ephesians 4.32. Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. This is showing mercy that arises out of a God has forgiven me in Christ the moment I trusted him. And by his grace, he will forgive me on judgment day. So in the middle of my life will also be marked by mercy. But there is an implication here. If you find yourself harsh and critical and unforgiving and bitter and vengeful, Jesus is, is suggesting here that you will not obtain mercy on judgment day. To put it simply, you're not a Christian. Not because we're saved by showing mercy, but because mercy is a result of being saved. It's a challenging call for us to look into our hearts, to look, be like, God, am I, is this manifesting itself in any way in my life? And I get we don't do this perfectly. There's times where we trip on our face, we fall back into our old sort of legalistic, critical ways. But one of the signs that you belong to God is you show mercy towards those who wrong you. There'll be mercy obtained on judgment day. Do you see yourself as a spiritual beggar? Do you see yourself as someone who needs God's mercy and therefore you are willing to show that mercy to other people? Am I gentle towards the backslidden? Am I welcoming to the truly repentant? Am I patient with the immature? Am I marked by the marks of a Christian or the marks of a hypocrite? But we move on to another one of these statements. Blessed, verse 8, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So not only is the good life marked by showing mercy and compassion, and by, that's, by the way, that's counterintuitive. You're going to absorb a whole lot of wrongs you'll be taken advantage of. It's not going to be an easier life here and now, but man, experiencing God's mercy on that day, day is something else. Blessed, flourishing, happy, or the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Saying the truly blessed, the truly happy, the truly flourishing person is, here's, here's the word sincere, genuine, authentic, Pure in heart. So what's the meaning here? The idea here of, of pure is being clean, being free of adulterating matter. The idea of having pure motives. I, I think there is a sense that he's talking about pure morals. He's going to talk later on about, like, look at a woman to lust after her. You've committed adultery already in your heart. Like the sinful, mo sinful morals in our hearts. But I think primarily he's thinking about the, the motives that we have. Why do we do what we do? Now, contrast this again with the Pharisees, because they're kind of the foil throughout the whole sermon. In Matthew 6, you'll say, look at the Pharisees. They go out, and they pray on the street corners and make sure everybody sees them as they take up their place to pray. So they go out, and they, they fast. And they disfigure their faces, and they go around just all saying, everyone's like, what's wrong? Oh, I'm fasting today. Oh, look how holy they are. And, and they, they, they go and give their money. The offering plate comes by, and they lift the coins way up and drop them to come clinking down into the plate. Like, it's all, it's all to be seen of men. Like, they don't do their devotions unless they post it on Instagram. You don't give the gospel to anyone unless they go and talk about it. It's all, it's all about a performance. And rather than loving other people, they're using other people to get praise and to build up their own ego. That's why I say there is a, there is a horizontal dimension. Yes, pure in heart in relation to God, but also in relation to, to other people. Do I, do I see people 
as a means for furthering my own popularity and fame? Or do I see people as individuals for whom Christ died who I need to love and serve? Am I seeking people's praise? Or am I seeking God's glory? Blessed are the pure. Now notice, in heart. Pure in heart. This is something interior. This is the the real you. The idea of heart is not the the blood pumping your organ, uh, the organ pumping your blood. It's not even the idea of emotions. Well, you know, it's Valentine's Day and there's hearts everywhere and we associate heart with emotion. The biblical idea of heart is neither the emotions nor the blood pumping organ in your chest. The idea of heart is the real you. The real you, the, the what makes you tick. The seed of your motives of why am I ultimately doing what I do? It's about your values. Like what is most truly important to me? Is it really praying to God because I want a relationship with him? Or is it praying to God so I can be seen as someone who is holy? That's the idea of the heart. It's your value system. It's your loves. It's your affections. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 15 makes the point that, you know what makes you evil? It's not the stuff outside of you. He says, it's not what you eat. It's not what comes into you. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you evil. So out of the heart comes adulteries, out of the heart comes fornication, out of the heart comes evil surmisings, out of the heart comes hatred, out of the heart comes murder, out of the heart comes lying and deception. The greatest problem we face is not the culture around us, but the inclinations within us. All right? The sinful culture can do nothing for us if your heart is like in love with God. Uh, So sometimes people are like, man, if we had this discussion in small group on Friday night, like, if I can get the kids to go to a good, good Christian college, that'll keep them walking with God. It might be the case. It can definitely be a great help. But often what happens, the kid graduates high school, goes off to university, rejects God, and they're like, oh, no, the university made them lose their faith. No, actually, what the university did was simply reveal what was already the inclination in the heart that was hidden, well hidden, under the structures and around the, in the environment in which they were in. Now, I am not suggesting deliberately put yourself in a dangerous environment and put yourself in a place where you're going to face more temptation. But the point being is the environment that we are in is not what makes you sinful. The environment in which you're in is not what is responsible for you rejecting God. The situations you face, you're like, well, the reason that I got angry was my spouse did such and such. No, the reason you got angry is you have a selfish, prideful heart. It is the heart that leads us into sin. Therefore, the heart change begins at the heart. It's not the situation. It's not the circumstances. It's not the environment. It's our own heart. Now, the Pharisees got really, really good at doing the outside stuff, at doing the external stuff, of being outwardly pure, cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside was full of rottenness. Uh, That's a powerful image. Jesus is like, you're like a beautiful tomb that inside is full of rotting corpses. We can look good on the outside. We can do the external purity thing really well and everyone be like, there's a holy person. Well, the heart is full of all kinds of wickedness that we keep carefully concealed within the tomb. Uh, it's like having one of those, uh, th- those Tupperware containers in the fridge. Got it all clean on the outside. It's nicely sealed, but it's been in there for like six months. And what used to be chicken noodle soup is now like unidentifiable science experiment. You take the lid off and it, whoa, like that, that could be the heart. We can have the outside looking really good. Purity is purity of heart, not the externals, not more rules, not more regulation, but about a heart that is motivated by loving God and loving one another. True Christian, Jesus says, is pure in heart. Now, again, notice the connection. Okay, the first beatitude, you're a spiritual beggar, therefore you're going to be merciful. Second beatitude is blessed are those who, what, mourn. People who mourn over their sin or will be the ones who are pure in heart. The only way to be pure in heart 
is to have our hearts transformed by the gospel, is to have a genuine change of heart that we call repentance. Create in me a clean heart. Now, again, we go about this all the wrong way. We think, man, the way for me to have a pure heart is to have lots of boundaries, high standards. And again, those could be an expression, a way to guard, a way to protect, but they cannot change the heart. You cannot make your children righteous by smothering them with rules. You can never change your spouse by, well, let me just use a little bit of guilt, a little bit of manipulation, and maybe I can get them to do what they're supposed to. That's just trying to change the outside. You cannot change your own heart by trying to impose more strictures on the outside. The heart can only be changed by a work of the gospel, by a work of Jesus, by exposing ourselves to the glory of God. So we're talking about purity of heart. By the way, when you think about the Pharisees, you think, well, man, if only I could live back in the first century, there wouldn't be all of this temptation around me. You can't walk into the mall, but you, don't, you see an ad that's kind of vile. You're living back in a day in the first century where people literally had fabric from here down to the floor, and yet Jesus had to say, if you look at a woman who lusts after her, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. The issue, the problem is the heart. It's not the culture. It's not the society. It's not the environment we're in. So here's kind of a litmus test to say, am I pure in heart? Why do you do what you do? Is there any sense when you come to church being like, man, I sort of hope that people notice that I'm here or that I'm going to sort of impress God by being here? Where does your mind wander when given the opportunity? If we were to project up on the screens here the thoughts, that the fantasies, the longings of your heart just in the last week, would it be consistent with the image that you're putting forward? Or would it be like, man, this is totally different? That's called hypocrisy, play acting. What do you secretly long for? Like, man, my life would be perfect if I had X. That, that, that's expressing the heart. Here's one. What would you do if you were guaranteed, number one, absolute success, and number two, complete anonymity? Like, I could do something, and I could do it really well. I could get away with it, and no one would ever knew, know that I did it. Those are the things that lurk within our hearts. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Oh, to have a pure heart. Oh, to pray with David. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. How do we get it? Well, I think we get it in the second half of the verse. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. Now, this is kind of riffing on Psalm 24. asks the question of who will ascend into the hill of the Lord. So those with clean hands and a pure heart, both externally and internally. So, okay, the motivation here is, do you want to see God and enter into his glory one day? Hebrews 12, 14 makes a kind of scary statement. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see God. So you better follow holiness and chase down holiness, because if you don't have holiness, you will never see God. Stunning statement. So purity in heart is required if you're going to enter God's presence one day. We've got to have a new heart. We've got to have transformation. We've got to have a new birth. And for those who are saved, you're like, hey, I don't do this perfectly all the time, but there has been a radical transformation. You're, if you've never had a heart change before, if you've never had the new birth before, if there's never been an experience where, man, I've seen my sin, I've come to a place of repentance and received the divine nature, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. John 3. But once that happens in your life, you know how we maintain and grow in our purity of heart? By seeing God. 
The more we long for the day that we will see him face to face, the more I am motivated here and now to pursue purity. So 1 John 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. He's saying the destiny of the Christian is one day to be in the unveiled presence of God, to be in the unveiled glory of God. And he says, the instant I see God, I will be like him. There will be no more sin, no more sin nature, no more impure motives in heaven, no more temptation, no more even inclination or, or, or wanting to go down that route. The moment I see Jesus, I will be absolutely and eternally and permanently perfect. That's like look around the room. All the sinners that you are worshiping with today, some of them you're like, man, I don't really like them. That person kind of drives me crazy. What? One day they will be perfect in the presence of Jesus, and so will you. But that's not a great, I can sin because I'll see Jesus one day. No, he says, everyone who has that hope in him purifies himself. He says, that works backwards into our lives to say, if I'm going to one day be absolutely perfect, that is the motivation for me here day by day to go to war against sin. The promise of seeing God one day is what motivates me to pursue purity of heart today. The more I can remind myself of what I will one day be, the, 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 the true identity of who I really am and will be unveiled in his presence, the more I am motivated to pursue holiness now. So that's why 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed into the same image as by the Spirit of God from one level of glory to the other. Let me just make it really simple. How do I, how do I gain and maintain and grow in a purity of heart? By seeing God. Seeing God is both the reward and the means of being pure in heart. The more I can open the scripture and say, God, show me your glory. Let me see your majesty. Let me be in awe of you. They say, you know, imitation is the greatest form of admiration. The more I can say, this is what God is like, and I want to be like him because I love him. The more my heart is going to be transformed to love what God loves, to want what God wants, to be what God wants me to be. The blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Are you pure in heart? Is there purity in your motives? Is there purity in your, in your morals of who you are on the inside? Is that seen in your, in your life? Because uh, listen, if you, have a, you can have a pure exterior with an impure interior, but it doesn't work the other way. If you have a pure heart, you will have a pure life because everything we do comes from the heart. Sometimes people will be like, oh, I know that person did such and such, but they have a good heart. Like, actually, no, if you did this thing, you don't have a pure heart because what you do is a reflection of who you are. Do you have a pure heart? We come into a, a third characteristic here in this, this second panel. The truly blessed, the truly happy person is not only pure in heart, but they're a peacemaker. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Word here that's used only one time in the entire New Testament. Um, Matthew takes the word for peace, the word to, to do or to make, and puts them together. Someone who makes, brings about peace. So the truly blessed, the truly happy person is not the person who just kind of retreats and lives on their own. Some people are like, man, the ideal life, the good life is to be like in a cabin by a lake by myself and nobody bothers me. No cell phone, no internet. That's the good life. People, they're the problem. Jesus is like, really good life actually means getting involved in the middle of people's mess. Uh, if you want an easy life, don't ever get involved in people's mess. Right? If you want an easy life, don't ever try to reconcile people to each other or to God. You're going to get caught in the crossfire if you do that. You know, Jesus says, 
That's where you go. You run out into no man's land between sinners and sinners who are warring with each other and between God and sinners who are warring with each other and try to bring about peace. Yeah, you're going to get hit by stray bullets. He says, that's the truly good life. So what kind of peace are we talking about? Okay, well, we talk about what is peace. Uh, peace is not like the hippie idea of like peace and, you know, this would be awesome. But nor is it the idea of just when the shooting stops, the absence of conflict. Peace biblically is the idea of wholeness. Everything just sort of being complete and good in the way God intended it. Of what is broken, broken being repaired, of what is in conflict being brought to restoration, what is at odds being reconciled and brought together. Not just the absence of conflict, but things being made right. So, so the, the, the one who will be called the child of God is the one, the one who will be called the son of God is the one who makes peace. A couple of different ways. So it makes, helps people make peace with God. Again, with all of these, there's a vertical, there's a horizontal dimension. We know that the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, one of the chief aims of that was to bring sinners in a right relationship with God. Glory to God on the highest, in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 20 through 22 says that one of the aims of Jesus dying on the cross was to reconcile us to God, right? To say, here's sinners who hate God. Here's sinners who are at war with God. Here's sinners who are rebellion against God. Here's God who is holy, and in his holiness, his wrath burns hot against sin. And through the, the cross work of Jesus, God's wrath is satisfied. God's holiness is upheld. And the wages of sin are paid so that there can be peace. So there can be a right relationship between God and sinners. So what's a peacemaker? Well, we're not the ones, we're not dying on the cross for people's sins. Rather, we're the ones who are taking that message of peace. And we're going, to, going out and saying, Hear ye, hear ye, there is a message from the king. He is offering amnesty and citizenship to all the rebels if they will acknowledge their wrongdoing and bow the knee to him. Going into enemy territory with this, uh, under this, this white flag of truce to declare a message of forgiveness to people who previously or maybe even right now still hate God. To be a peacemaker is not to be an appeaser, okay? This is not a Neville Chamberlain coming back from Munich with, I've come with peace for all time, but rather this is saying sin has been paid for. We're not minimizing sin. Sin's been paid for, and there is a relationship that can be there between God and man. And this peace is not just God rolling over and playing dead. No, not at all. This is peace that was won by the blood of Jesus Christ. So a peacemaker is one who declares the message of reconciliation. So Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, he says, All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself. Okay? So we've been brought into a right relationship with God by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word, the message of reconciliation. Hey, you're a Christian here today. God has entrusted into your hands, not just our and this vague, you know, all of us together, your hands, this message of peace and reconciliation that needs to be declared to people whose lives are out of sorts with God. So who are you sharing the gospel with? Blessed are the peacemakers, people who go and help people make peace with God. Who are you, who are you giving the gospel to? Who do you know in your life? Maybe even where you're taking notes, write down just one name. 
Like, there's one person I know who doesn't have a, a, a right relationship with God. Just write down one name. And understand God has put you in their life to bring the message of reconciliation. The same message that God used to bring you into a right relationship with him, you can turn around and give to someone else. That's hard. That's, you know, they, they, I value the relationship too much. They're a family member, and it'll make like Thanksgiving something really awkward. Someone's eternal soul is on the line. And Jesus positively says, if you want to be the truly good life, it's not just sitting back being like, you know what, what they believe is none of my business, and I'm just going to keep it. No, the truly good life is pressing in to say, here's God, here's you. Let me show you how you can have a relationship with him, how this can be restored, and you can have peace with God. Maybe it's as simple as, okay, March 31st is Easter Sunday. There's someone you're like, can you just come to church with me? Yeah, you're taking a risk there because the message might be super weird. Uh, you're like people with like the singing, and it's just like, this is different. People might, might think I'm a weirdo being part of this crazy church here. But they can also come and be with God's people and hear the, 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 the message of the gospel sung and preached and read. And God might just work in their hearts to plant that seed that you can follow up on and see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. Crazier things have happened before. But it's not just peace with God that we're declaring. It is peace like God. Peace with other, other people. Ephesians 2 makes another point. The same cross work of Jesus that reconciles me to God reconciles us to each other. He takes Jews and Gentiles, boom, puts them in the same body, and is like, y'all get along because Jesus died for both of you. The Christian does not just share the gospel. The Christian goes about doing all that he can to bring about peace between other human beings. So one of the texts that, that uh, Brian read says, you know, the, the, the truly good life is the guy who seeks peace and ensues it. He goes about trying to bring about peace. Romans says, as much as lies within you, live what? Peaceably with all men. We're living in a world of, of, of conflict, of hyper-partisanship, of polarization, and just overall nastiness, right? Like online is pretty, pretty, pretty toxic on there. And in the middle of that, Christians are not to be like, well, let's just give them as good as they've given us. No, Christians come back and say, we're going to be the ones to bring the temperature down 10 degrees in the room. We're going to be the ones who are going to try to work towards peace, towards harmony. You see, Christians don't seek conflict. We don't. Christians don't start fights, don't nurse grudges, don't troll the opposition. Don't go out of the way to be like, we're going to own the libs, name call, or fuel feuds. Instead, Christians are marked by an eagerness to bring about reconciliation with other people, even those you strongly disagree with. Not by giving up your principles, but by seeking to, to be reconciled. After all, Paul does say, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. There's going to be some things that you're like, I've done everything I can. They refuse to live peaceably with me. That's on them, not you. That's why Jesus later on in Matthew 5 says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him. Try to reconcile. That's why Jesus at the end of Matthew 5 says, it's not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, but rather... It is to love your enemies, verse 44, to bless them that curse you, to do good to them that hate you, to pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Notice that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. The same promise is attached to that as blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Later on, he says, loving your enemies, praying for them. They'll also be called the sons of God. We're talking about the same thing here. Peacemaker, someone who is willing to say, I'm going to go the extra mile, a phrase that comes from Matthew 5, even in the face of opposition, even in the face of hatred, to love those who've wronged me. 
So being a peacemaker means you're the one who's like, I want to try to reconcile these estranged friends. It means I'm the one who wants to unite these churches that are split. I'm the one who wants to get in there and counsel these troubled marriages. I'm the one who wants to bring together normally separate groups under the banner of the gospel. We should be the ones going out of our way, like in our neighborhood, maybe there's a big conflict in your neighborhood, to be like, man, how can we resolve this? Like, what solution can I bring to the table that's going to bring about resolution here? Maybe it means that being the one in the, you know, you're sitting around the conference table and there's this conflict, this problem is creating division to be like, I'm going to really think about this and come up with a creative way to solve this problem. How can I work towards consensus, towards healthy compromise, not compromising principles, but practical compromise that's going to bring about a solution that's going to bring people together rather than drive them apart on these issues at work or your neighborhood? The point here, Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers, primarily, I think, getting peace with God. So they will be called the sons of God. The word sons, not just the word children in the, in the Greek, because sons conveys the status. It's not just a, oh yeah, you kid, but it's a status, this relationship that is there. In the Hebrew mindset, to call someone the son of someone is not just to say, yeah, he's his dad, but it's to say he shares the character of that individual. In other words, we're, we're never more like God than we, when we put ourselves out there to bring about peace between God and sinners and between sinners and sinners. That's stunning. Peace like God. We're like God when we bring peace. We're like God when we introduce people to Jesus. We're like God when we mediate those tough relational issues. We're like God when we seek to live peaceably with all men. Now, what, what is this, they'll be called children of God? He's not saying, okay, if you, if you sort of win enough people to Jesus, yeah, there's sort of a list up there, and when you reach enough, God's like, now you're my son. No, no, we're God's son because he adopts us into his family the moment we believe in Jesus. But there comes a moment where you're like, now you're really living like my son. There's sort of this coming of age where you're like, man, you are ready to carry on the family legacy, so to speak. When you're reconciling people to God, people to each other, since you're, you're displaying your sonship, you're displaying your relationship to the world for all to see. But we must not stop there because Jesus said something else about peace. And this might even seem contradictory. He says, I've not come to the world to send peace, but to send a sword. How can both of these things be true? Blessed are the peacemakers. I've not come to send peace, but to send a sword. As we come pointing people to real peace and relationship with God, not everybody's going to like it. In fact, a lot of people will react hostilely to that, right? They'll react with, with anger. They'll even react with, how dare you suggest that I'm not already right with God? How dare you suggest that I need a Savior? How dare you, you even imply that things are not right between me and God? And so that brings us to verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted. Being a peacemaker does not mean everybody's going to like you. Like I said, getting in between those messy relationships, you might be caught in the crossfire as you're trying to help a husband and a wife who are at each other's throats try to get together. Eventually, they might grab your throat. Blessed are those which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus is saying that the truly blessed individual is often hated, often hated by the world, persecuted. Now, a couple of things we need to point out here. You don't just say, blessed are the persecuted. 
No, what does he say in verse 10? Blessed are they which are persecuted for what? Righteousness' sake. This characteristic of being persecuted for righteousness is pretty stunning, right? This is like, what, what are you talking about, Jesus? Having people sort of, the idea of persecution is being pursued, being under pressure, having people kind of after you. This may not mean physical persecution. This might just mean like, people don't like you and they're, they, 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 they're, they're opposed to you because of righteousness. But this is very important. The reason for the persecution that brings God's blessing is not just persecution for any old reason. Some people will claim persecution for things that have nothing to do with Jesus. Like, well, I, you know, I sort of walked into the middle of the boardroom and just started preaching at them in the middle of work, and the, the boss told me to not do that on company time. I'm being persecuted. Like, well, no, actually, you need to work on being a better employee and be wise about how you give the gospel. Uh, that's why I had Brian read that text in 1 Peter. He says, if you're going to be persecuted, don't let it be for being a busybody in other people's matters, being a murderer, being a thief. Uh, we can be pretty good at claiming that we're being persecuted when really, frankly, we've just been a knucklehead, right? Jesus does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted for being foolish. He doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for their political viewpoints. He does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted for their you know, acidic personality. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Okay, what is righteousness? In the, in the context of Matthew, uh, righteousness is living in a way that pleases God. So if you're living in a way that pleases God, remember again, the, these panels we're talking about, verse 6, you're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, you're chasing down righteousness, you're like, I want to live in a way that pleases God, I want to live like Jesus. People don't like that and they begin to persecute you as a result. Now why? Because when you begin to live the way God wants you to live, other people see their lives to be like, well, I'm not living like them. They must think they're better than me. They're judging me. They're being harsh towards me. Let's, let's, let's have it out for them. They won't, they won't cuss. They won't go do the things that we do. They're not going to engage in the big crazy party after work. And so let's go after that person. It's because of righteousness, of dedication to Christ. So Peter draws this distinction between being persecuted for sin and being persecuted for righteousness. So if we're breaking laws, if you're meddlers, if you're obnoxious, if you're foolish, if you're tactless, and you're rejected, that's not the kind of persecution that brings blessing. If you hold outspoken political viewpoints where people are like, I disagree with that. Listen, if you're holding political viewpoints that other lost people can hold and you're persecuted for it, that's not for Christ. Those might be perfectly good political viewpoints, but if you're like, well, here's half the country actually agrees with me and they don't even know Jesus. I've got some outspoken view on taxes or something like that, and people like give me a hard time online. It's not being persecuted for Jesus. If you're being, if you're facing difficulty because of your view of how an election went or should not have gone, that's not being persecuted for Jesus. It's being persecuted for your own political viewpoint. That's not the kind of thing that Jesus blesses. So the reason for it really matters. Notice it takes on multiple forms. Some people are going to revile you, verse eleven. So sometimes it's verbal. Attacking is not just like, well, you're only being persecuted if you're literally being burned at the stake. There can be verbal persecution. They'll persecute you, general pressure. They'll say all manner of evil against you. People will malign and attack. And behind your back when you walk out of the room, people are rolling their eyes. Be like, oh, there's that Bible thumper again. So there's going to be a lot of forms that this persecution can take. It might mean that snide comment from coworkers. It might mean getting a note from, from HR at your company because you're like, I'm sorry, I'm not attending this diversity training that's requiring me to call people pronouns that don't align with it. Like, I can't do that as a Christian. It might mean being fired from your job. I'll be honest, in other countries, Christians face this kind of thing 
far more frequently. They don't have the First Amendment, right? They, they, they can, you can lose your job for simply being a Christian. In many Muslim countries, if you convert, converting from one religion to another is a capital offense. So once you go public with your faith, you follow Christ in the waters of baptism, boom, families coming after you, honor killings. It happens all the time in other countries. In some totalitarian countries where the state demands to be God, North Korea, claiming to be a Christian means you're not worshiping the state anymore and they're going to come after you. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing this in ways that you and I never will. The point being, this can face a lot of, can, can, can be expressed in a lot of different ways. But here's the point I want to land on. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The ones who are persecuted, the ones who are willing to suffer for what they believe, for the one they know. Notice again verse 11, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, say all manner against you falsely for my sake. So it's not just for general Christian morality's sake, but because of your allegiance to Jesus specifically. It says, when that happens, you're like the prophets they persecuted beforehand. It says, when that happens, you can be guaranteed great reward in heaven, and you have this certainty, this encouragement of knowing, mine is the kingdom of heaven. Now, how does this work? Again, it's not, if you're persecuted enough, if you get you know, 10 people to say something nasty against you for being a Christian, then you'll go to heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying is, is this. Let me put it this way. What kind of person is willing to be persecuted for what they believe? The answer is someone who really believes it. Right? What kind of person is willing to be persecuted for what they believe? Someone who really treasures it and values it. Listen, there's some things that I believe that I would not be willing to like lose my job over. Like, you know what? Whatever. It doesn't matter that much to me. What this is saying is those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for Jesus sake, is saying there are some things that not only do I believe, but I believe them to be of infinite value that I'm willing to lay my life down for them. Wow, that is a powerful testimony that you truly know Christ. It means that you have come across the pearl of great price and saying, I'm willing to give up everything to have this. I've seen Jesus and say, Jesus is so worthy and so beautiful and so glorious. I'm willing to turn my back on my sin. I'm willing to turn my back on everything if I can just have Jesus. And I'm willing to suffer for it. So even if we never face the hostility of our culture, because thank God we live in a culture that is not hostile to us in the way that it was in the first century, even if we don't, there should be a deep sense of conviction in our souls. There should be a sense of warm attachment to Christ that's so great to be like, I'll do anything, I'll lay my life down. Now don't tell me, that you're willing to lay your life down for Jesus if your faith won't even get you to church. Don't say, I'm willing to suffer for Jesus, but I can't be bothered to set the alarm clock 15 minutes earlier to open the Bible. You're probably deceiving yourself to say, oh yes, I would be willing to face the wall and be, face a firing squad for Jesus. You're like, but I'm, I'm not reading my Bible. Um, it's faithfulness now in the little things that often demonstrates where our hearts really are. Uh, remember this, Peter um, was able to walk on water, but he wasn't that great at following Jesus on the land. And it's the following Jesus on the land in the day-to-day, day-in, day-out, that often shows the true barometer of our hearts. So before we say, would I be willing to die for Jesus? Okay, am I willing to like live for him tomorrow morning? When Easter rolls around, there's that person I want to bring to church with me. Like, let's, let's start there. Right? Jesus is most valuable to us. He's going to be most valuable to us, not just in like the big moment of crisis, 
but in the little moments every day. Well, these are some pretty crazy paradoxical values, and they only make sense if what Jesus is saying is true. Now, that's the question we've got to put to ourselves. Do I believe what Jesus is saying? I've got a competing narrative here. The world is going to say, here's the way to true happiness. It's through just like doing your own thing, living your dreams, being whoever you want to be. Jesus is offering us a completely different path. Which one do you believe? Which one will you follow? Which one will define your life? As you look over this list of Beatitudes, ask yourself this question. Do, do I see these in my life? That these are the marks of those who have the kingdom. Oh, I have the kingdom. I believe in Jesus. Okay, are these things true in my life? May God help us to be marked by these things, by these traits, more and more in our lives, more and more every day, until we enter into his, into his presence. Would you bow with me?